Good morning again to all of you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point Church. And we are in week two of our series that we're calling Parable. And every week for the next uh, few weeks, we are going to be looking at a different parable uh, that Jesus told. And we're going to be looking at that particular parable and, and drawing some conclusions and giving you sort of a unique challenge every week. And today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take a Bible out, turn it, make your way to Luke chapter 12. And I, I would like to, um, before we get to the actual passage that we're going to read, I just want to kind of summarize what's going on in Luke chapter 12. This is sort of in, Luke chapter 12, we're, we're sort of in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's, he's kind of hit his stride. He's making a name for himself, even though that's not necessarily his goal. But he's become very popular. His fame has spread to all the surrounding villages around Jerusalem. And he's traveling from town to town, village to village, teaching, healing people, calling people to repentance and faith in God. And it's, it's changing people's lives. And, and his fame is spreading. And so in Luke chapter 12, what we're told right away in verse 1 is that Many thousands of people had been coming to Jesus, were coming to Jesus to hear him speak and to hear him teach. And the crowd was so, um, I don't know, excited about hearing Jesus. They were trampling one another. Many thousands of people. It, it sounds to me kind of chaotic, like Black Friday at Walmart. Or if you've had a bad concert experience. I remember going to a concert many years ago at the Riverside to see this band with my friends, and we were sort of in the front of the line that we were waiting all day to get in. And they had taken all the seats out. Thousands of people were going to see this band. And as soon as they opened the gates, we, we ran. There was literally, we were running to the very front where the stage was. And we were right there where the, where the wall was that separated the stage from the crowd. And what I didn't anticipate was that everybody from the back was pushing forward. And it was literally crushing us. One of my friends passed out. The security guard had to, he was like a big guy too, like 220, 230 pounds. And they had to carry him over the barricade and take him off to the side because the weight of the crowd was so crushing. It was like a wave of pressure every 30 seconds. And it was crushing our bodies. And, and that's sort of what's happening here. These crowds are just uh, pressing against one another to hear Jesus. It was chaos. Many thousands of people were coming to hear him teach. And what's really interesting about that is Jesus sees the crowds. He obviously acknowledges that there's crowds. But then you know what he does? He turns to teach his disciples. He starts speaking to his disciples. He doesn't look at the crowds and say, Oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to give these people exactly what they came for. Jesus Christ was not an entertainer. He did not tell people what they, what they wanted to hear. He did not care about popularity and fame. He was not, his philosophy of ministry was not to draw as many people as he could and then keep them, keep the crowds coming. That was not his philosophy of ministry at all. Jesus Christ, oftentimes when there were crowds of people drawing near him to, to, to listen to him, he would say things that pretty much guaranteed they, were, they would never come back to hear him again. And eventually we see the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Because Jesus Christ, 
his mission was really centered on 12 men and preparing them for life after he ascended into heaven so that he could unleash them onto the world to build God's kingdom. That's what his ministry was about. And so in here in Luke chapter 12, that's exactly what he does. He turns to his 12 disciples. He begins speaking to them, probably loud enough so that the crowds could overhear. And he's teaching them about hypocrisy. You know, he says there's, there's going to be people in the world who look a certain way on the outside, but eventually you'll find out it wasn't real. It's not who they really are. One day, everything that's true about them will come out. It'll be exposed. The things they said in secret will be shouted from the, from the rooftops. So watch out for hypocrisy. He starts teaching them about God's sovereignty and that God knows the, uh, the hairs on your head. He knows when a single sparrow falls to the ground. So don't worry about your life. He teaches them about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit's going to be active in your life. And he, he's teaching all of these, uh, you know, rich realities about God. And some of that, some of the things he was teaching was really hard for people to hear. One of the things that he says leading up to the parable we're going to, we're going to look at today is, you know, he says to people, don't, don't worry and don't be afraid about what people can do to you. Don't be afraid about people who can only kill your body. Worry, be afraid of the one who can not only destroy your body, but who can destroy your soul. I mean, talk about heavy. And this, these are the kinds of things that Jesus was saying to people. And thousands of people are hearing him. He's teaching his disciples. And then... This guy from the crowd who's been there apparently listening or not listening. It doesn't sound like he's been listening to anything Jesus says. He, he, he interrupts Jesus in the middle of all this great teaching. And he says to him, hey, teacher or rabbi, please tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Can you believe that? This, I mean, the nerve of some people. I can't believe someone would actually interrupt God. I mean, doesn't he know he's interrupting God to tell him, to tell him, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Obviously, he hasn't been listening to Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus thinks about money, but he's going to, he's about to find out. He has no respect for, you know, Jesus and, and his authority. And Jesus could have easily turned to this guy and said, what, what, are you serious right now? Haven't you been listening to me? Don't you know who I am? What are you even doing here? Go home. Get out of my face. I mean, that might be what, what, what some teachers would have said. But Jesus doesn't do that. And this is something I love about Jesus. Jesus shows respect for this man as a human being. He actually shows a bit of compassion, I think, in his response. He basically says to him, Look, man, I have... I have uh, no interest in resolving this for you. It's not my calling to settle financial disputes between family members. That's not why I'm here, is what he says, basically, to this guy. And then, rather than, you know, pick up where he leaves off and, and, you know, continue to teach on the Holy Spirit and all these other things, he actually takes a cue from this man, and he changes the subject. He starts talking about the issue that this man raises. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And it's an issue, I want to tell you, this is an issue, a subject, that every single one of us struggles with. Whether you will admit it or not, I, I know that about, I know that every single one of us struggles with this issue. I know it for a fact. And the subject that Jesus is going to address today is the subject of greed. 
the subject of greed or covetousness. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. As Jesus tells us, a parable, a really chilling kind of parable that I've oftentimes wished was not in the Bible, if I'm being honest. But it is. And so we're going to look at it and talk about it this morning. It's in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Here's what we read. And he said to them, now Jesus is speaking, now Jesus is speaking to the crowds. As far as I can tell. Because this question came from the, from someone in the crowd. So here's what he says. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Some translations say against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's the parable. The parable, uh, sometimes called the parable of the rich fool. Now, what we're going to do today is just what we did last week. We're going to sort of look at this parable like we would any other story, because that's what a parable is. It's a story that usually um, compares two things or two people to make a point. Or it uses someone as an illustration to make a point, to transform people, to teach us something about what God's really like. So that we can, you know, so that we can move away from whatever we imagined God to be like and actually embrace God for who he really is. It changes our perception of reality. That's what a parable does. It puts us in a position to be changed by God if we take the parable to heart. And that's what this parable, just like every parable, is designed to do. So we're going to begin by looking at the setting. What is the setting of this parable? The setting is very simple. The setting is the property of some man who's very well off. Jesus says he's rich. He has more than the average person, probably a lot more than the average person. And he has a phenomenal year, the kind of year that could set you up for life. His land produces way more than it ever has before. That's the setting. That's what happens. There are two characters in this parable. Every story has characters. Here, This one has two. Just like last week's parable. The rich man and God. Those are the two characters that were given as parable. Let's talk about the wealthy landowner for a minute. We know a few things about him. He's anxious, for one thing. He looks at this, all the stuff he has from his uh, bumper crop that he had that year, and he says, what am I going to do with all this extra stuff? He's anxious about it. He's not sure what to do. He doesn't have enough room. But he's more than anxious. He's actually afraid. He's afraid of losing what he has. 
Fear causes him to tear down his old barns and build new ones. Fear causes him to save everything for the future in case he never has another year like this one. He's driven by fear, not knowing what the future holds, to try and control his future. To set himself up for a comfortable future. Fear, my friends, is at the heart of greed. Fear is what fuels greed. Which means that this is not a courageous man because greed and courage are incompatible. You cannot be a greedy person and a brave person, according to Jesus. This is a scared person, an anxious person, and you might not know it if you met him. He probably came across as a very confident, successful person. He's rich, he's smart, he's a saver, he's careful. He just wanted to secure a certain quality of life in the future He probably thought of himself as a wise person with a a good financial plan and reasonable goals. We would call this man prudent. And there's nothing wrong with being prudent. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to save money, okay? That's not what we're saying. There's nothing wrong with any of that. The problem with this person is that he only thought of himself. That's his problem. He's only thinking of himself. He's self-absorbed. He has eye trouble. You remember the song, Eye Trouble? If you've been to Awana, remember singing that song? I've got eye trouble. That's his problem. He's thinking about me, myself, and I. What am I going to do? I mean, think about what he says here. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He's only thinking about himself. And then God enters the story. God, the second character in the story, leans down from heaven Maybe he taps him on the shoulder and he says, you are a fool. This word could also be translated idiot. You're an idiot. What is wrong with you? Why is he a fool? It's not because he lacks intelligence. It's not because he wasn't, you know, strategic enough. Fools can be very intelligent, intuitive people. He is a fool Because he rejected reality. That is what a fool does. They reject what's real. He thinks he is the reason he had such a good year. He's wrong. He thinks that his money is his. He's wrong. He thinks his money came from all his hard work and his effort. And that he has the right to do whatever he wants with his stuff. He thinks he has many years to live. All of this indicates a total detachment from reality. According to Psalm 14, verse 1, we read, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is the essence of folly. And this man has a problem. He's relating to his money and his possessions and his property 
as if there is no God. It's all his. He can do whatever he wants with it. That's why he's a fool. And that brings us to the crisis in the parable. What's the crisis? Every story has a crisis. His crisis is simply this. He has too much stuff. He doesn't know what to do with it. He has too much money. Now, who, who here thinks you have too much money? Does anybody? Okay, some honest person just raised their hand. I appreciate that. What if I said it this way? Who here thinks you have more money than you need? More hands would go up, but not very many. Come on, work with me, guys. Listen, what would you, when have you unexpectedly come into money? Has that happened to you? I'm not talking about finding $5 in your pocket or something like that. I know how exciting that can be. But that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about your bonus. Maybe you get an end-of-the-year bonus. What do you think about when you get that? What happens when you come into, you know, when you get your share of the inheritance? What do you do when you get an une- that unexpected raise or some other financial gain? What do you do when you see how big your tax return is going to be and you, it's bigger than you expected? Has that ever happened to you? What do you start thinking about? Now, this man's crisis is that he doesn't have enough room to store all the profit he has. And if you think about it, that's really not a crisis. That's not a crisis at all. That's a blessing. But he makes it a crisis. It makes him, it makes him anxious. You know why? Because he's afraid of losing what he has. That's the only reason this is a crisis for him. It's because of fear. He doesn't want to lose it. He's afraid of losing it. That's his problem. And that reminds me of something Jesus said once in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said some very memorable words. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man, what does it profit if a man gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Okay? Do you know who Jesus is talking about there? He's talking about people like this. That's exactly who he's talking about. Do you know why? Because this rich landowner, like many Americans, his life is defined by his financial worth, by how much he has. His life is is defined by his portfolio, his, 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 you know, economic category. That's how he looks at himself through that lens. That's how he defines himself. His life is defined by how much stuff he has, how much money he has, how secure his future is. That's how he's, that's his identity. That's his life. That's the most important thing to him or one of the most important things to him. And according to Jesus, if that's you, if you are a person who defines yourself that way, and if that is, that is one of the primary ways that you identify yourself, if you don't lose your life, you will not be saved. That's what he's saying. You have to let go of your life. You have to. You can't hold on to your life. Toward, you can't hang on to that identity and hang on to Jesus. You can't have both. In another place, Jesus said, you can't worship God and money. You cannot do that. It's impossible. 
You can't serve two masters. You can't have two identities. You can only have one. Now, Jesus has already said that a person's life does not consist in his possessions. He said, that's one of the big points that he makes. Your life does not consist in how much you have. Your wealth is not a measure of your worth, in other words. That's what he's saying. But to this man and to many, many Americans, that's how we look at ourselves. And so his crisis is a very real one. What will I do with all the extra that God has given me, that God has given us? What are we going to do when God gives us extra? That's his crisis. What if we don't have enough room for it? What if we don't have enough room for it? You know? What are we going to do? What's the solution? His solution, according to the parable, is I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to tear down my old barns. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to save everything. But this isn't much of a solution, and here's why. Because more and more money never makes a person more secure, and it never helps them sleep better at night. Did you know that? More and more money actually makes us more anxious, and it makes us more stressful. We think that if we had more money, if only we had more money, our problems would go away. If we just had, if we just made more money, my life would be less stressful, and I'd, I'd, I'd sleep better at night. But listen to Ecclesiastes. Listen to what Solomon said. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 and 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. No matter how high it goes, this also is vanity. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. It's interesting. Jesus follows up this parable with a sermon on anxiety and worry. And he basically says, don't worry about all the stuff you don't have. God's going to take care of you. That's one of the points of the message. Think for a minute about how much simpler your life was when you made less and owned less. When you had less debt. I slept better back in those days. And because I didn't have kids either. Just I just slept much better. Didn't you? The solution is never more money. Never. The solution is never more stuff. Even though that's what we think sometimes. Now there's a climax to the story. Just like there is every parable has a climax. Every story has a climax. What is the climax of this parable, it's death. God leans down from heaven. He, he speaks to this man. He says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, all your savings, all your bigger barn projects, all your plans, all your profits, whose will they be? In other words, what was all that for? What was the point of all the planning and all the saving? Tonight will be your last. That's the moment when people's jaws would have dropped. Because up to that point, most of Jesus' audience, and maybe some of us, would think, this guy's doing pretty well for himself. I wouldn't mind being that guy. Until the climax. Right? 
And I don't think Jesus' listeners are ready for that. You know, here's a guy who's careful, he's strategic about his financial future, he's able to execute long-term financial and business projects with success and set him up for a comfortable future. Isn't that the American dream? You know, to set yourself up for a comfortable, quality retirement. I mean, that's what we're told, isn't it? Isn't that what we're supposed to be striving for? Isn't that why your company brings in the, you know, the uh, financial planners and they tell you about the 401k and they tell you about the Roth IRA and they tell you about all the things, you know, how much you should be setting aside. They're telling you how to plan and prepare for your future so that you can live comfortably, so that you can enjoy the good life. That's what we're supposed to be going for, right? What does God think about that? He, according to this parable, he thinks it's pretty idiotic, actually. According to God. I'm just telling you what's in the text. Because ultimately, God leans down to us and he says, um, you know what? I just want to remind you, you're not in control. You're not in control of your future. I am. So what's the point of the parable? Well, there's a couple points in this parable. The first one, Jesus tells us right before the parable. He says, right before he tells us the parable, he says, watch out for greed. A person's life is not defined by their stuff or their financial worth. So watch out for greed. Why do we need to watch out for greed? Why do we need to guard ourselves? There's a few things we could say, but the reason Jesus gives us is this. Because your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's why. And that by itself should be a huge wake-up call for us. Because we are very good at collecting things. We are very good at upgrading. We are very good at storing up treasures for ourselves. We are. Most of us. And greed tells us that that's good. That's normal. That's what you should be doing. It's your, it's your life. It's your money. It's your future. Protect that. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about protecting that. I got that covered. You protect yourself from greed. That's what we need to be protecting ourselves from. Okay? People who believe that their life is defined by the quality and quantity of their possessions and bank accounts are always collecting more, always saving more, always thinking and preparing for the next possession project. You know, we say like someday I'm going to get that. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to build this. I'm going to be worth this. And because of how greed operates, The people who are controlled by it always value possessions over people. We always value profit over people when we're driven by greed. We always do. You know, we won't just let anybody drive that car. We won't just let anybody play that instrument. We won't just let anybody use the boat. Why? Because that's our baby. And it's more valuable to us than people. My, one of my kids reminded me last night, and I love how God does this to me on Saturday nights, humbles me. We have granite countertops in our kitchen. I used to work for a stone fabrication shop, and I was able to basically fabricate these 
at almost, you know, very little cost. And Pastor Scott helped me put them in and everything. And I'm really protective of the countertops sometimes, even though they really, most of the time, they get abused by my kids. And one of the kids had put a hammer or something on the, sometimes they hammer stuff on the countertop. That's a big no-no. I'm like, no, 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 take that outside. And one of my kids, last night, they hadn't seen my, my notes here. He said, Dad, these countertops are like your baby. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't appreciate that at first, actually. But then when I thought about it later, I was like, she's right. Those granite countertops are too important to me. I really shouldn't care. They're not important. I really shouldn't care. You know? So because greed is so subtle and so difficult to detect in ourselves, some of you probably, you're listening to this sermon, and you're probably thinking of the greedy people you know, right? Just be honest with me. Well, I want you to think about yourself for a minute, okay? Just just think about yourself for a minute, and I want to help you. I don't want to make you feel guilty. That's not what I'm here to do. I want to help you protect yourself. And there are some good indicators of whether or not there's greed in your heart. And I want to share some of those with you. Okay? You might have greed in your heart if your family feels like they're competing with your stuff. You might have greed in your heart if your family does not like bringing up money around you. You might, not, you might, be, you might be greedy if you think about money a lot and daydream about how you can make more and more of it. You might have greed in your heart if you give your money away, but just not enough to affect your lifestyle. And now I'm going to get personal. You probably have greed in your heart if you're saving more money than you're giving away. And that's just the truth, my friends. And that doesn't take long for you to figure out, does it? But that is the truth. If you're saving more money than you're giving away, you probably have greed in your heart. If you talk to others as if, you just, as, as if you just have enough to get by, you might have some greed. If you like to talk about all the things you've done for other people and remind them about those things, you might have greed in your heart. If you're uncomfortable when other people give money to you with no strings attached, you probably have greed in your heart. If you are not content with what you have, you have greed. If you feel lonely most of the time, you might be a greedy person. If you are reluctant to express gratitude to others, that's a good indicator of greed. And finally, if you look down on poor people or you resent rich people and you don't love either, you probably have greed in your heart. So the first point of the parable is that we need to watch out for greed because it does sneak up on us. And once it's in your heart, it grows. Just like every other sin, it grows. Until there's repentance. So what's the second point? The second point is made, Jesus makes a second point once the parable's over. He, can, he ends the parable by saying, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Their life's going to be going real great. They're going to be saving for the future. They're going to think they're doing really well for themselves until reality steps in. And it might not be till the end of their life. And they realize, you know what? My time is going to run out way before my stuff does. 
That's how it's going to end for a lot of people. And Jesus says that's not good. So you know what? Stop laying up treasures for yourself and be rich towards God. That's the second point. Stop laying up treasures for yourselves and be rich towards God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, Jesus doesn't give us specifics, but here's what we do know. It's the opposite of storing up earthly treasures. We know that for sure. It's the opposite of living as if there is no God when it comes to my money. It's the opposite of thinking that you need more money or more possessions to be happy. It's the opposite of thinking that you deserve an upgrade. It's the opposite reaction to an unexpected windfall where we come into some money. Our first thought when that happens might be, ooh, what can I buy? Or you could say, what can I give? Who can I bless? Isn't that the alternative? Isn't that what it means to be rich towards God? If you were to insert yourself into this parable, which I think you should every week, just put yourself in the parable. Just imagine if this happened to you. You had an amazing year that set you up for the rest of your life. And imagine if you actually loved God more than money. How might you react? You might say, God, everything I have is yours. This amazing year, all the profit is from you. You have blessed my work. You increased my sales. You landed me those accounts. You got me that raise. You have given me way more than I deserve and way more than I need. God, what do you want me to do with this excess? I already have enough. I don't need more security. I don't need a bigger safety net. I don't need to eat better food. I don't need to start drinking craft beer. I don't need the gym membership. I don't need 200 more channels. I don't need the better car. What I need, God, is more of you. I want to be happy. And I know that knowing you and doing what you want will give me that. I want the people around me to be happy. I would love to use what you have given me to help and serve people. And I want your generosity to change my heart. I want my generosity to change other people. I don't want people to have to wait until I die to enjoy my stuff. I want to make the most of what I have now. I want to experience you the most, God, now. I want to be rich towards you, God. Thank you. Thank you for what I have. Now, can you imagine if, 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 the, if the wealthy landowner had responded that way, this parable would have ended differently. And this parable is a snapshot of a person's life. It's a snapshot of our life. It's a snapshot of your life. And how rich we are towards God. And so, really, who's the hero? Who is the hero of this parable? Is there one? There might not be, in the parable anyway. And this might be, we might be a little predictable by this point, but the hero of the story is Jesus, my friends. The narrator, once again. Do you know why? Because Jesus shows us what to do with our treasure and with our security. Leave it. Give it away. Isn't that what he did? Jesus existed from eternity past. He had perfect intimacy with his, with his heavenly Father He had the constant praise of the angels. 
He had all the glory in the universe pointed at him. And he saw us, lowly sinners, and he left it all behind. He left it all behind. All the glory, all the praise, all the riches, all the pleasures were at his right hand. And he left it to become a baby. And to give his life up for people. To give his life away for worthless sinners like you and me. People, you know, created in God's image, but who are alienated from God and who are deserving of death and who are under the curse of death. He left everything good behind to be our substitute on the cross, to give his life for us. You know why? Because we were his treasured possession. You are his treasured possession. You are worth more to him And so he left his home and he came to earth. That's what he did for us. He gave his riches away. He showered it on us. He did it to secure us. Is Jesus your treasured possession today? Is he worth more to you than your stuff? We have to see that Jesus is more trustworthy than money and that he's, more, he's a better savior than money because money can't save us. It, it just can't. It can't save us from tragedy. It can't save you from death. It can't save you from sin. It can't give you the control that you think it can. It can't make you happy like you think it can. It can't give you a better, a better sleep at night. It can't do any of that. But Jesus can. And so the challenge today is this. And this is really practical, actually. I think what God wants us to do is to start giving our stuff away. He wants us to give our money away. I'm not saying give, it, give everything away and become homeless or, or poor, okay? That's not necessarily the point. But this is what Jesus said just a few few verses later. This is what he says a few verses later. He's still on the subject of money. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. In other words, (laughs) that are full of money for long periods of time. Empty your money bags on a regular basis. Provide yourselves with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and where no moth destroys. Why? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Which means simply this, your heart goes where your money goes. Your heart goes where your money goes. When you spend a lot of money on something or you invest a lot of money into something, guess what? Your heart goes there. Your heart follows. Your affection, your attention, all gravitates towards where the money is. That's what consumes you. You begin to care a lot about that car or that house or whatever the thing is that you're throwing all your money at. That's exactly how the heart works. That's how money works. That's why Jesus talked about money more than any other subject as it relates to the kingdom of God. It's not because he needs our money. Jesus was poor. It's not because God needs our money. But Jesus knows that money gets a hold on us and we think we need it. 
Our affections gravitate towards it. And so God wants us to give our money away simply so that we can give ourselves to him because he wants us. And the only way for God to have us is if we are not obsessing over money. It's the only way that God will have our attention and have our our loyalty and have our love. That's why he tells us to give our money away. It's for our good. It's for our good. It's not because God needs our money. Jesus didn't ask people for money, but he talked about it a lot. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants us. And so I think the best thing we can do is to give our money away regularly. My wife and I, we give, we make it a habit. It just has to become a habit. And it took us all, I'm ashamed to say, it took us many years of marriage before we were doing it habitually. Habitually giving away at least 10% of our gross income. It took us many years to get to that point because we were waiting for until what, you know, what we had left over. We would just give away what was left over and that was not a lot. It was never that much. But that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so we eventually, to break that cycle, to break that stronghold, we just said, you know what? This is more important. A generous heart is more important to God than our comfort in this lifestyle that we've decided we need to live at. So we decided we are just going to give away this month or this much every month. And, and we do that electronically so we don't forget. And if, I love it. I mean, we, we've never been lacking, ever. We did have to adjust our lifestyle a little bit. And you know what? It was great. It's been wonderful. And then, and then we give spontaneously too. When God gives us opportunities to bless somebody, we do it. We do it because of what God has done for us because God always has been a giver. He loves giving his best stuff away. And he wants us to be like that. He wants us to, to give like that. And you know what? You may, I mean, you may not feel like doing that right away. And you may be like, you know what? I'm not happy about doing that, and I know God wants me to be a cheerful giver, so maybe I should just wait and not do that. And I understand that logic. But, but don't forget what Jesus said, okay? Your heart goes where your money goes. So if you want your heart to change, you might change your heart by starting to give and invest in God's kingdom a lot. Your heart just might follow. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to take a risk and to begin giving generously to God and his kingdom, to God and his church, to God and his people, to people who you see who have tangible needs? Would you be willing to do that? Because according to the parable, your life depends on it. That's what's real. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace in our lives. And I thank you, God, that your word and, and the things you said, Jesus, are very hard to hear sometimes, but you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what's in our hearts more than we do. And you tell us what we need to hear. You tell us the truth. And you hold nothing back. And even though, God, we may not always appreciate that at first, we are grateful that you gave us your word and that you tell us the truth so that we can become more like Jesus. And I pray that you would make us a generous people and a humble people, that we would not identify ourselves with our stuff or with how much money we make or with our job title or whatever it is that we think is important, but that we, God, would learn as a people to identify ourselves with the one identity that matters, our 
what you say about us. That we are in Christ through faith. That when you look at us, God, you see your son Jesus. I pray that that would be how we remember ourselves and how we see ourselves. And that that would influence how we use our money. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. And if you would like to talk further about the, the subject today, I'm sure so many of you are excited to talk more about that. That you could, I'd be glad to talk with you more if you have questions, or you could talk to Pastor Scott or any of the elders. And um, you know, we need to be reminded of these these things regularly as well. So, greed is something that's just there. It's in our hearts. It creeps up, and it's a very real issue for every one of us. And we need to constantly remember where our things come from, and where our success comes from, and where our wealth comes from. It comes from God. All of it. God gives us the ability to work, and God can take that away. Every good thing we have is from Him. So let's remember that together this week as we, as we think about what we have and how rich we really are. I'd like to leave you this morning with a benediction. If you'd bow your heads, please. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.